Well, good morning, church. Thanks, uh, Joel, up in Studio B. Thanks to uh, Andrew and Richard, who are up in our production suites as well, and Thomas patrolling the building. So just five of us here today. But so many of you out there watching uh, right now in the live stream, watching on demand this week, we're so grateful for you. We love the way the Holy Spirit is tying us together as the church. So it is time for God's Word. Joel's already set it up and has you at Romans chapter 7, verse 7. But just before we look at the passage, uh, see if this isn't true for you in the same way that it's true for me. There are times as a believer when uh, you feel like there's two yous. There's the you that wants to be faithful to Jesus, obey Him, and live for Him. And there's the you that falls into repeated sin, still gives in. And the two yous, if you would describe it this way, the two yous seem very much at war with one another. I think you would agree with me that that's a pretty apt description of the Christian life. And in today's passage, Paul kind of shows us his side of it, what he sees in the two uh, yous that are inside of him. In verse 23, he says, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. And he describes for us this internal war, which I find to be a great description of the war going on inside of me. And I think you're going to be able to identify with Paul's own story, what his struggle is and his words. And and we're all going to come, as as we study through this, we're going to come to a greater understanding of the gospel and specifically the fact that in this facet of the gospel, the gospel is struggle. By its very nature, it's struggle. It doesn't come easy. But along the way, we're going to see that victory is possible. It can be increasingly hours, the longer we walk with Christ. And so Romans 7, 7, through to the end of the chapter, I'll read this, we'll pray, and then we'll start looking at it together. Paul again starts with a rhetorical question, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet, If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, 
but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, so much uh, for us to hear uh, in that uh, passage. And God, I pray that today uh, will be an encouragement to many as we struggle, a challenge to us as well to continue on with the struggle and to live for you. Father, as your children, to fight this battle over sin in our lives. And so, God, in these moments, just very simply give us understanding. And Father, give us your spirit to live this out. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, in your notes, here's what we're going after. Living out the gospel is a struggle. That's our statement. Living out the gospel is a struggle. But, but listen, not because I'm confused about what's sinful. The principle um, is stated for us right off the bat in verse 7. What then shall we say that the law is sin? The question is coming off the earlier part of chapter 7 and need some things that we heard in chapters 5 and 6 that told us that we have, and this is uh, verse 4 of chapter 7, we've died to the law, that we are, verse 6, released from the law. In fact, uh, the law had enslaved us. And so it's natural for some who are reading this to then conclude that the law is sin. But Paul wants to nip that in the bud. Paul replies, verse 7 continues, by no means, not at all, God forbid, yet if it had not been uh, for the law, I would not have known sin. Again, the, the law here, whenever we're talking about the law, it's a reference to the Old Testament, what God had prescribed for Israel. And, and in fact, encapsulate it really in the Ten Commandments that we find in Exodus chapter 20. And we've already said this several times in this series. It's important for us to hear it again. Paul keeps coming back to it, that the law could only take us so far. No one can be saved by keeping the law. Keeping a list of of godly rules is not going to be the thing that pleases God and satisfies His wrath against us. That the law, as John Stott put it, the law reveals sin. But then Stott goes on a step further to say, not only does it reveal sin, but it also provokes sin in us. And we'll come back to that thought in just a moment. So Paul jumps in to this illustration because he wants to make his point here. He jumps into this illustration about covetousness. And covetousness is, I want what you have. I want, that's coveting, I want what you have. And then he says this, this is again uh, partway through verse 7, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, 
you shall not covet. If we didn't have the law, we wouldn't know about coveting. Uh, same thing is, um, uh, you know, if you're, uh, if you're a dog owner, and um, the, the only reason why you could be fined for walking your dog at the waterfront in one of the parks down there, you could be fined if your dog was off leash. The bylaw was brought in by city council to say you have to have your dog on a leash when you're at the waterfront, or, or you can't smoke at the waterfront park because there's a bylaw that says so. But if the bylaw wasn't there, then you could smoke your cigarette and have your dog off the leash as much as you wanted because there'd be no law about that. Because the bylaw was enacted, you can't do either of those things. So that's what Paul's saying. There's a law about coveting. So now I know coveting is wrong. In fact, it's the 10th commandment of the 10 commandments. This is what it says. This is Exodus 20:17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, it's so interesting that of the 10 commandments, he picks this one as his example because coveting is an internal battle. Coveting isn't necessarily, necessarily something that anybody else sees. You can think about a lot of the other commandments. Stealing, adultery, murder, lying, using the Lord's name in vain. They're all outward sins. They're all active sins. They're all things that people could and do see when we commit them. So it becomes representative here when we talk about coveting because it's such an internal battle. It becomes representative of all the other sins that we fight internally. So don't think that this passage is just about coveting. That's just his example. It's also about lust. It's, it's also about hatred. It's also about idolatry that we have in our heart. And these are all the harder ones to fight. Because they're all inside of us. And then to come back to this idea of the law provoking sin, I said we'd get there. Stott said that the law not only reveals sin, but it provokes sin. He says in verse 8, but sin, and twice he's going to use this phrase now, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. In other words, by laying it out so clearly, by God saying that you can't covet, and then even producing a list of things you shouldn't covet, the law in that way provoked sin in me. Knowing that I could covet, oh, I did covet. Knowing that I could sin in this particular way, oh, did I ever throw myself into that sin? In fact, we could say that line again and just put a couple of blanks there. You could take your favorite sin, the sin that uh, most grips your heart, knowing that I could blank. Oh, I did blank. What's your preferred sin? What's the thing you're battling in your heart right now? That's what he's talking about. And then he goes on to say, verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Verse 11, for sin, here it is again, seizing an opportunity, provoking this in me through the commandment, deceived me. Sin deceives us. 
We think we're going to be satisfied by this. We think we're going to feel better by coveting, by lying, by hating, by lusting. We're not. It deceived me and through it killed me. Both physical and spiritual death coming on humanity as a result of our sin. And the conclusion in verse 12 is this, far from the law being sin, the law is actually holy and the commandment is holy and it's righteous and it's good. How so? Because the law reflects the very moral character of God. It's the perfection of who He is. And it's that moral character of God that we desperately need to be reconciled with, but we can't do it on our own. The law actually sets out the parameters of what it means to be reconciled with God. But we can't meet those parameters on our own. And so, that's the explanation of these verses, the implications now. No one should be confused about what's sinful. The law spells it out for us. And where people get off track, where we go, look, I didn't know that was a sin. Maybe you're a newer Christian and you don't know certain things are sins. But for those of us who are mature in the faith, who've been reading the Scriptures for many years, who have been learning of the Lord, walking with Him, um, we know no confusion about what's sinful. The law lays it out for us. And where people get off track is, is in three ways. They ignore the Word of God, or they outright reject the Word of God, or they reinterpret the Word of God. That's the only way we could get to a place where we could feel good about our sin. And in fact, just to focus for a few minutes on this reinterpreting of the Word, because this is a big deal, big deal today. This is, this is really in vogue. To redefine what is actually sinful from the Scriptures. If we don't like the way things have been laid out by God's Word, then we simply move the stakes. We change the field of play. We allow cultural influences. Look what's happening in the whole world today. Clearly believing this is out of step with the culture, so we'll just reinterpret what the Scriptures say. And so it's nothing new here. Like, I'm not talking about unbelievers who are looking at this book and going, it's antiquated. I'm talking about believers who are picking this book up and saying, you know, I know that it meant that then, but it doesn't mean that now. It's nothing now to hear uh, professing Christians say that premarital sex is allowable. It's nothing now to hear professing Christians say that being in a same-sex relationship is permissible as long as it's monogamous. It's nothing now to hear professing Christians excuse the watching of explicit sexuality on their favorite streaming service because, you know, that's the culture and we have to know what's going on out there. But listen, let's get real for a moment. We know those things are sinful. We know that they're inconsistent with the moral character of God. That's why, there's, that's why there's such an effort going on right now to reinterpret the Scriptures. In fact, to take a step even further back, not only to reinterpret the Scriptures, but to go back and, and rework and rewire the way that we interpret the Scriptures, the principles of interpretation, so that we can look at the Bible now 
and arrive methodologically at a very different conclusion than the historic understanding of these truths. The scholars are doing this in seminaries and Bible colleges. They write journal articles and books and they hold symposiums. We'll change the way we interpret the Bible and that'll give us more favorable interpretations. But it isn't just happening in the Bible colleges and seminaries. It's happening right, right here, right here at church level. It happens right in small groups and in our homes. It's happening in our own hearts. But when we're genuinely saved, our conscience uh, doesn't allow that to happen. The Holy Spirit who's resident in us never stops reminding us, hey, you know what? You just moved the stakes. It still means the thing that it's always meant. You moving the stakes doesn't change anything. We know it's sin. So we know. We know when we've gossiped. We know when our anger crosses the line. We know when we've drunk too much. We know when we've watched something that we shouldn't have. We know when our greed got the better of us. We know when we've been complacent about our worship. We know when we've coveted. When we've wanted what others have. We know because we have the Word. We know because we have the Holy Spirit reminding us. Later in in Romans, in chapter 10, verse 8, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 30, verse 14, and he says this, The word is near you. The word is near you, and it's in your mouth and in your heart. And you can't escape it. Christian, if you're genuinely saved, you cannot escape the pursuit of God's Spirit as He convinces you and convicts you concerning the things of God and the things of this world. So living out the gospel is a struggle. And we can see that just in this first point, in these first verses. Living out the gospel is a struggle, not because I'm confused about what's sinful, but because I'm at war with my own flesh. I know it's sin, but I often give in to it because I'm weak. Think about that scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. The disciples are with Jesus and... It's been such an incredible three plus years. They've been walking around with him and hearing his teaching and seeing his miracles. They're absolutely convinced that he is the Messiah. They saw the triumphant entry just days before. And now in the garden, Jesus asks them a question. He says, will you just pray with me? He knows what's going to happen next. Would you just pray with me? They fall asleep. They can't keep their eyes open. They don't labor with him in prayer. And Jesus says this when he comes back and finds them asleep. He just says such important words and thinking about this battle that goes on inside of us because that's what the disciples too were facing. Jesus just said this. This is in Matthew 26, verse 41. He said, the spirit is willing. If you're here in the room, I get you to repeat it back. The spirit is willing, but the, the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak. So verse 13, I'm at war with my own flesh. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. The law is good. Okay. 
in order that sin might be shown to be sin, that through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure, that I would really throw myself into this sinfulness. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. And there's the echoes of the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And really what we're hearing here is I, I, I need to accept the bad news before the good news will have any benefit to me. But even when I become a believer and receive those benefits, verse 15, I do not understand my own actions. I've got the benefits. I've become a follower of Christ. I have the Holy Spirit in me. I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I'm a Christian. I've known Jesus for this many years. I love Him. I worship Him. I sacrifice my life for Him. Why do I keep doing this? I mean, if ever there was a summary of the struggle that it is to live out the gospel, this is it. How many times after sinning the same sin that you've sinned a thousand times before, would you utter the same words? I don't understand my actions. I'm not doing the thing I want to do. I'm doing the very thing I don't want to do. How many times have you prayed that prayer? This makes his point, verse 16. Now, if I do what I do not want... I agree with the law that it's good. The law is pointing out my sin. That's a good thing. So now it's no longer I, verse 17. Now it's no longer I who do it, but sin. It's no longer I who do it because because I've been saved. I've been declared righteous. But sin that dwells in me, the residual sin that's in my flesh. One of the theologians and leaders in the church who wrestled with this uh, the most, I think, and wrote some great stuff about it is Martin Luther. He was obviously a key leader in the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. His studies of the doctrines of grace led him and the other reformers to break with the Catholic Church. It was Luther and Calvin, Zwingli, and Knox who brought us back to the simplicity of the gospel message. Salvation is by grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ alone. And among the key statements made by Luther was this one in Latin, and this is a, a font that's actually in his handwriting, simul justice et peccator, simul justice et peccator, which means at the same time, saint and sinner. At the same time, saint and sinner. I mean, we've already seen in Romans, that we are declared righteous, that we're justified, we're saved by God at the moment of our redemption by Christ. God sees us as sinless, not because of anything we've done, but because of Christ and what He's done. But that said, we're still living out our days down here on this timeline, awaiting the final redemption of our souls. 
and exposed still to the onslaught of temptation and sin in this world. And too often, though we are declared righteous, too often we succumb, our flesh gives way to sin. And so, how do we reconcile this? How can we be declared righteous but still be so sinful? Simul justice et peccator. At the same time, saint and sinners. This is what Paul's describing. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Can you sense the level of frustration with the battle that's going on inside of him? Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I mean, how helpful are these verses in terms of just understanding the struggle that's going on in the life of every Christian? And this helps explain it without giving us license, therefore, to just throw our hands up and go, well, that's the way it is. I am both saint and sinner. Therefore, I'll be the best saint and the best sinner I could possibly be. There's no license for us to sin here. There's still a grasping and going for the moral character of God. I hate the fact that I keep falling into these things that I don't want to do. We can't say, you know, it's not my fault. We can't say sin made me do it. We can't blame the devil or the world. No, I'm still responsible. I have to own my own sin. I have to confess that sin. I have to deal with that sin. I have to resist temptation when it comes my way. I have to do all of that in a way that is consistent with a Christian who is growing in their sanctification, their holiness. And we're going to hear a lot more about that as we move into chapter 8. In fact, let me say this. The one thing that's great about the struggle and about this two yous that are inside of you warring together is that it's an indication of genuine salvation. The person who isn't genuinely saved doesn't care about these things, but you do. So don't despair that you're struggling with sin. In fact, rejoice that you're struggling in this way with sin. Charles Cranfield brings great clarity to this point when he says, Paul's words in Romans 7 depict vividly the inner conflict characteristic of the true Christian, a conflict such as is possible only in the person in whom the Holy Spirit is active and whose mind is being renewed under the discipline of the gospel. So yes, it's a struggle. Yes, I'm at war with my own flesh. But, ready for this now? Ready? I win! I win when what Paul says next is true of me. So I can overcome sin. I can resist temptation. I can be victorious when, first of all, I delight in God's Word. Verse 21, so in light of everything I've just said, Paul says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm at those most 
inopportune times, when I'm really trying to live holy for Jesus, temptation comes. When I'm most vulnerable. That sounds familiar. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Now, I love that the Word is so forthright about all of this, that it exposes me, that it also points out the way, of God, way to God. And I, I'm thinking that as Paul even wrote about delighting in the law of God, that he was thinking about Psalm 1, because he would have known that Psalm so well. Psalm 1, 1 and 2, blessed is the man, blessed is the person who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So you're blessed if you resist temptation and resist sin. But how do you get there? His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on His law, He meditates day and night. And so it's a simple question. If you're really going to be serious about sin in your life, serious about the struggle of the gospel in your life, in what way are you delighting in God's Word? Okay, part marks because you're watching this live stream right now. You've made the effort to be here. You're listening to God's Word. So you're taking in a sermon and taking in a sermon at least once a week. That can be part of delighting in God's Word. But you have to feel like there's more to it than, than, than that. Do you have a reading plan for God's Word? Are you getting into God's Word several times a week? To read it for yourself? Are you in a small group that looks into God's? I know it's hard in your Zoom fatigue and blah, blah, blah. It's God's Word. Delight in it. Make the effort. Get on the Zoom call. Talk about God's Word. Study it out together with others. Have you memorized God's Word at all recently? Do you ever meditate on it? Psalm 1 speaks to that. Do you journal God's Word? Do you Have you ever thought about taking a study outside of all the formal things that we might offer? So much is available online. What about taking a course that would help you understand it better? And not saying you have to do all of these things, but if there's something there you're not doing right now, and it would help you delight in God's Word even more, then pick one of those things and start doing it. Delight in the law of God, because that's the way you're going to win. And secondly, he says, I admit my frailties. There's, there's no room for pride. And this is, remember, this is the apostle writing this. They all knew Paul. He's writing to a church he'd not visited before. And he's like writing to them and opening up his heart and saying, look at the struggle I'm having with this. There's no room for pride. This is not the time to bring out those, you know, even those phrases like, you know, I have it in me and I can do this. And there's no time for motivational phrases, Okay. You just have to admit that you don't have it in you and you can't do it. You just have to go back to verse 18 and see it again. I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it on. And here he says, verse 23, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, my flesh and my mind, what I know to be true and what my body actually does, two different things. I have this war going on inside of me. This is the human condition from our first breath. Life is a fight. I was there for all three of my kids being born in the delivery room and seeing all three of them be born. It's a fight. That first breath is a fight. We come into this world screaming. 
fighting to breathe. And to our last breath, we fight. I've been there when people have passed. And to the end, we fight. We battle, we wage a war to live. Because the perfect creation has been marred by sin, and so the battle is in us and it's around us. And Paul, sensing the desperation of his situation, he cries out humbly, wretched, wretched man that I am. No no hyper-spiritual facade, no pretending that he's something that he isn't. It's authenticity, it's transparency, it's vulnerability in verse 24. There's no holding back, there's no excuses, there's no explanations, there's no deflection, there's no reinterpretations of what God has said. Just a heart ripped open in confession. I'm a wretched man. I'm a sinner. Though saved, I'm still wrestling with sin. And then this desperate appeal for help. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I win when I admit my frailties. And then... Finally this, I win when I adore Jesus. The question he asks himself in the last verse is answered. He says in verse 24, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he just breaks out into worship and gratitude to God. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the one. That's the answer to the question. He's the one who will deliver Paul. He's the one who will deliver me. He's the one who will deliver you from this body of death. In other words, though the gospel is a struggle, we need not cave into sin. We need not live defeated lives. We need not be consumed by our sin. We need not abuse grace by continuing in sin. If we would adore Jesus, if only we would love Him more. See, ultimately we sin against Jesus less when we love Jesus more. We give no occasion for sin to grip us if we fill our lives with worship, service, devotion, and love. It's no secret that sin satisfies an itch for us. So if we remove the sin, which ought to be our aim, an emptiness is left there. The longings, the desires must be replaced. The void left must be filled. And it must be filled with Jesus. Verse 25 continues, the conclusion comes then, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. I know what's right. I know what's sinful. I know what's holy. I know how to eliminate sin. The problem is not one of education. So often in society today, it's like, we just need better education. We need to tell people. No, 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 it's not education. It's the will. And it's the fight against the flesh. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Luther said something else that was helpful here. Sin is indeed always in us. 
Sin is, always, is, is indeed always in us, and godly people feel it. But it is covered, Luther said. It is covered. And that is to say it's atoned for. We need to rest in the thought that God's wrath over sin was appeased by Jesus' death on the cross. We did nothing to deserve or earn that. It's a gift of grace. It flows from His unconditional love to us, and it is received by faith alone. The fact that Jesus did this for us and that it answers the question, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will save me? Who will forgive me? The answer is Jesus. The answer is always and only Jesus. And we ought to adore Him for that. The gospel is a struggle. It's so worth it, isn't it? It's so worth it. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we just have a sense, even finishing this message now, having looked at this passage, which a Father informs us, but also gives us freedom and challenges us. But it just seems to me, Father, that going into the next week, the next few days, the next hours, the temptations are going to come hard and fast for those of us who truly want to live for you, want to be holy. And so, God, help us. Help us by your Spirit. God, I pray that you would help us with with all of the ways that we need to apply this in our lives this week. More delighting in your word. More transparency and vulnerability with others. More adoration of Jesus. God, help us with these things, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.